uh, we should probably begin, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to you all. Many of you are not from the University of Sydney. Welcome uh, to uh, our campus. Uh, my name is John Keane. I am Professor of Politics uh, here at the University of Sydney and I had a hand in founding and now coordinating the Sydney Democracy Network which is a, uh, a co-sponsor of this evening's uh, forum. I want to acknowledge uh, to, uh, uh, to you uh, and to uh, the indigenous peoples of our uh, land that we meet on the land of the Gadigal people and I uh, pay my respects to uh, their elders past and present and remind you that this land has been theirs for some 40,000 years and will remain so. I wanted to thank Meredith Hall who's not here tonight from Sydney Ideas, uh, always tireless, uh, equally tireless Lindy Baker who is uh, the coordinator of, of SDN, the Sydney Democracy Network. Uh, Dr. Lucia uh, Sobra, who um, is actually the silent, invisible person behind this event uh, from the Department of Arabic uh, Language and Cultures. Uh, grazie mille, uh, Lucia, for all that you've done to make this possible. I want to thank the Council for uh, Australian Arab Relations uh, at DFAT, at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And I want to thank also the Iraqi Cultural Festival, uh, whose representative is here tonight. Uh, and has a hand in bringing uh, one of our key speakers. Uh, I think I have mentioned um, everybody who has made uh, this possible. I repeat that the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures and the European Studies Program in the School of Languages and Cultures uh, have played a very important role in tonight and, of course, SDN. Our subject tonight is um, on the fifth anniversary, more or less, is the... Um, the upheavals that occurred uh, in 2011 uh, in uh, parts of the Muslim world, uh, upheavals that have been called revolutions, and like every upheaval, uh, every revolution, they've proven to be fickle affairs. I can recall that um, about a month and a half after the beginning of those uprisings, we had a forum possibly in this room where I think the whole language of analysing those um, uprisings was uh, very different than it will be tonight. Revolutions are fickle affairs. You know that the very word itself is contested uh, and there are strange things going on uh, today such as the regime of al-Sisi claiming that they are the revolutionaries. Uh, there are uh, clearly um, the symptoms of revolution are clearly uh, in evidence. There are great upheavals that do change the world and change many things within it. They generate great excitement, as has uh, been, of course, the case. Astonishing things happen. Um, think of, he was my colleague and friend in London, Rashid Ganoushi, uh, returning to Tunis where he, uh, within a couple of days, um, declared that he was in favour of a Tunisia where the veil would be legitimate, but it was not compulsory to wear the veil and that this would be part of the, the revolution that, was, that had begun. Uh, we know that these revolutions have, in the names of dignity um, and justice and uh, freedom, have changed uh, many millions of people's lives. These people are not the same as before. 
we also know that these um, upheavals are not finished. And one uh, theme, I think, tonight is that um, there's a lot of unfinished business um, that is uh, uh, happening and yet to happen. We also know that revolutions, uh, a word that dates uh, from the time of the French Revolution, have a nasty habit of breeding backlashes. There are attempts at counter-revolution, uh, as you saw from, uh, as you see in the program tonight. And these are episodes, these are upheavals, where uh, it's a very famous expression from Pierre Vigneault, who was a Girondist. He was one of the great orators of the French Revolution, and he was executed uh, by the guillotine, who uh, famously said in a speech that citizens, we have reason to fear that the revolution like Saturn will successively devour all its children and finally produce despotism with the calamities that accompany it. Some would say that that sentence applies very much to at least uh, some aspects of these events which are continuing to unfold. And unusually, finally tonight, I think uh, what's unusual about this event which uh, uh, Lucia Sobra has uh, uh, helped uh, us put together is that we're looking at the way in which all revolutions actually have much wider spillover effects. And in this case, um, we are interested in uh, and we'll address uh, tonight the impact of these uprisings of 2011 unfinished and the way that they have affected European dynamics. One could say, Jan Zilonka, who is uh, a frequent visitor to the university, would say that actually these um, upheavals are deepening the process of European disintegration which is going on. And it's not only to do with uh, stateless people who are, uh, are desperately in search of a home and the, the tremendous pressures this has put on Europe, but there are other things going on in Europe. The, the resurgence of populism, the widespread xenophobia, the closure of borders, a Japanese-style stagnation that shows no signs of ending, talk of withdrawal from the European Union, and so on. This is our subject tonight. These are big and important topics. We have three speakers, three very distinguished speakers. Uh, Andrea uh, Teti is a senior lecturer at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, he has just arrived in Australia for the second time after a 45-hour flight. So be kind to him when you ask him questions. Uh, he specializes, you will know, uh, in Middle Eastern and European Union politics. He's currently a scientific lead on the European Commission-funded Arab Transitions Consortium. He's co-director of the Centre for Global Security and Governance, senior fellow of the Brussels-based think tank, the European Centre for International Affairs. He's published a great deal, as you will see from the web, on Egypt, the Arab uprisings, and the European government's responses to these events. Uh, he has uh, an important media presence, uh, and uh, you will find uh, him popping up on the BBC, France 24, CBC, SBS, Al Jazeera, and Deutsche Welle. Um, he is currently working on the politics of democracy, his most recent book, Informal Power in the Greater Middle East, Hidden Geographies. Our second speaker will be uh, Bronwyn Winter. Welcome, uh, Bronwyn, Associate Professor here at the University of Sydney in European Studies and International and Global Studies. 
Um, Bronwyn uh, has uh, for a long time um, made a reputation for herself as uh, a fine scholar and writer on women, sexual orientation, religion, secularism, ethnicity, violence, and the state. It's a lot. Uh, and in a variety of contexts, including most recent, recently work on Tunisia. Uh, her publications include a book called Hijab and the Republic, uncovering the French headscarf debate. She's written a book um, on September 11, 2001, Feminist Perspectives, and there's a sequel to this book um, to appear later this year called Women, Insecurity and Violence in a Post-9-11 World, which... Uh, Syracuse University uh, Press are going to publish. And the third speaker uh, will be uh, Professor Vrasidis Karalis, uh, who is well known to, um, I'd say, many of you, if not most, uh, as one of the great public intellectual figures here at the University of Sydney. He is Sir Nicholas uh, Laurentos Chair in Modern Greek, uh, studies here published extensively on a very wide range of subjects, Byzantine historiography, Greek political life, Greek cinema, European cinema, and contemporary political philosophy. Uh, he's also a very fine debater, as I discovered in a forum on love and politics. Uh, he has also worked extensively as a translator um, into Greek, uh, including the novels of Patrick White. His most recent book is The Demons of Athens. I recommend it to you strongly. It's a mix of fiction and reportage and autobiography illustrating the social collapse of Greece after 2009. So, ladies and gentlemen, we begin. I want warmly to welcome Andrea Teti, and I ask you to join me in that. Thank you very much, um, John. I'll try to live up to the presentation, to the introduction. Um, and conveniently, I've got to plan this all so that or we've planned this all so that um, uh, this would be me. So thank you very much for your warm welcome here tonight. I'd like to thank, first of all, the, the um, Council for Australian Arab Relations and um, uh, Firas Naji, who's helped organize my visit, and Lucia Sorbera, who's been a wonderful host at um, University of Sydney. My fellow panelists, who I have to, uh, I have a challenge to live up to the reputation of, um, and um, and uh, and all of you for coming. Um, I'm here from Scotland, and I've just been to Melbourne. And as soon as I arrived in Melbourne, after planes, trains, and automobiles of delays, cancellations, and so on, um, it rained. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, and then I arrived in, in Sydney a couple of days later and, and, and uh, it rained. So um, I, I thought that was a bad thing, so I was apologizing to people and then people said, no, no, this is very good because you know, we, need, we need this. So um, um, next time you need some rain, you, you know where to find me. Okay, so this evening what I'd like to do is I'd like to reflect a little bit on one of the key words in um, the title of the panel, betrayal. What does it mean to betray democracy and what are the implications? How is it that I think we can claim that democracy has been betrayed in the last five years? Um, and to do that, I think, I mean, I'd like to start with, um, again, well, actually these iconic images. Uh, these images actually come from a, a kind of Google images search that I did and uh, uh, just completely unscientifically at the beginning of um, uh, 2011 when I was following the uprisings. And it was really interesting that apart from the, um, the obvious 
picture of Tahrir Square in, in, in Cairo, um, you had uh, immediately pictures of refugees and barbed wire, some sort of threatening imagery um, associated with refugees and migration. Um, and then two, what I think are two great pictures, a, um, a press conference between uh, Hillary Rodden Clinton and um, Baroness Ashton, and um, I, I imagined always that this picture was taken at a moment when a journalist had asked a question, you know, how, how is it that the European Union is going to respond to the Arab uprisings? What do they make of the Arab uprisings? And they're kind of looking at each other going, wow, I, I, you have anything? I, I, I don't have anything. I've got nothing. Right? And it kind of, it did, it was a little bit like that, you know. Um, you know, it was a surprise. Uh, people were... Uh, uh, surprised politically. Let me just go back to that for a second because um, our friend over here, Nicolas Sarkozy, who was then the president of France, says, gives, he gives this very fantastically Mediterranean, I'm originally from Italy, Mediterranean response. Eh, I, I, don't, I don't know. You know what, what are we going to do about this? Uh, I apologize to my French cousins. But anyway. um, and this is actually another apposite little slide, although I've sort of cycled it so that it would randomly entertain you in case I bored you with my words. This image over here was taken from the External Action website. External Action is the sort of the foreign service of the European Union. And for me, it's fantastically Huntingdonian. You know, Huntington's clash of civilizations. And he sort of says there are several civilizations, you know, and there's Judeo-Christian civilization and then Islamic civilization and so on, right? And this is fantastically Huntingtonian because it seems to me as though you know, we're learning about the process of democracy and who's, who's doing the learning, right? And who's doing the teaching? Yeah? That's a very problematic image, but anyway. So um, this was maybe a, a good example of the, of, of the way in which um, uh, some of us thought about the uprisings in, and about democracy in general um, at the beginning. The contrast, contrast this with what was actually going on in the Middle East itself. If you think about what happened in Tunisia, if you think about what happened in Cairo, in well, actually, not just Cairo, throughout the country, but not just there. Libya in the early part of 20, 2011, Syria, Yemen, Bahrain. What you saw were amazing images, wonderful images of people, uh, of people power, mass mobilization, people taking to the streets and uh, claiming claiming social justice, claiming an opposition against authoritarianism. Um, uh, these claims were never explicitly framed in terms of democracy, but uh, claiming social justice, right? uh, claiming representation. And while the claims were not presented in terms of democracy, they very much fit that kind of, um, that kind of template. Flash forward about five years, my particular area of interest is, um, is Egypt within the Middle East. And if we think about Egypt, you know, what do, we, what do we see when we look at Egypt today? Well, I jotted down a couple of notes before coming here, and in the picture looks pretty grim. You know, the failing economic policies, massive political repression, the declaration of not just the Muslim Brotherhood, but a bunch of non-governmental organizations, human rights organizations, as terrorist groups, um, and the, of course their repression, mass arrests, the use of military trials for civilians, um, desaparecidos, hundreds of people a month in the last, especially in the last year or so, hundreds of Egyptians a month have been disappeared um, by security services. Some are found alive and well, some are found in prisons, um, some end up dead, um, including, for example, um, 
Italian PhD student and uh, labor movement researcher Giulio Regeni, who was um, found dead on the 3rd um, of February. Innumerable numbers, innumerable numbers, innumerable, innumerable civil society organizations have been shut down, more latterly a Nadim Center that did a lot of work on torture, uh, which is indicative. There's systematic attacks on freedom of, um, uh, of journalists to operate. And here in Australia, of course, you'll all remember the case of Peter Grest, who was arrested as part of an Al Jazeera team in, uh, in, in Egypt itself and held for a very long time in Egyptian jails, which I can assure you is not pleasant. Um, attacks on female political activists. And you can remember maybe the images of the blue bra girl, you know, being, um, well, being assaulted by, uh, by troops um, during the actual uprising or the killing of the activist famously shot through the body um, uh, and dying in her partner's arms um, as she fell to the ground. And, and of course, attack on, um, we're in a university, we should mention it, attack on academic freedom. Not just, of course, the case of Giulio Regeni, which I mentioned already, uh, but there have been innumerable arrests, uh, travel bans um, on Egyptian um, uh, academics, but also uh, foreign academics who have been expelled. So it's a very grim, grim pic picture. Um, and the question becomes, how is it that the European Union, like many international actors, you, I mean, we could be talking about the United, Na United, United States government, we could, talk about, we could be talking about um, uh, European member state governments, but um, my, uh, my friends in Brussels will forgive me for talking about them for a moment. So how was it that the European Union reacted uh, to these unprecedented mass mobilization claims for rights, claims for social justice um, that swept across most of the, most of the Arab world. Um, well, in, at first, well, at first the reaction was actually embarrassing. The French offered support uh, to Ben Ali in Tunisia and offered to actually send police and advisors over to help quell the rebellion. Now that's quickly forgotten and the French, French quickly got on side with the protesters when they saw that this was a momentum that wasn't going to go away. Um, and since then the French, like the European Union, have, uh, have made a very public mea culpa and have said, well, we made mistakes. Mistakes were made and we're not going to make those mistakes um, again. What were those mistakes in their view? First of all, the de facto support for dictatorships. Right. So that was justified under a kind of softly, softly, gently, gently approach to democratization, encouraging gradual change, eventually producing um, democracy in, in these countries. Secondly, and they recognized that this wasn't happening, that that, that kind of softly, softly approach effectively meant, up, meant shoring up dictatorship. Secondly, what they recognized was that the notion of democracy, the thing that they were trying to help promote, um, in the Middle East like elsewhere uh, was flawed. Right? It was flawed in the sense that it was too narrow, too narrowly focused on things like elections. Okay? So the European Union claims that, um, that this was a, uh, these were two mistakes that were made and those mistakes would be rectified, that new policies would be put in place that would recognize mistakes of old and, and, um, and move on, not repeat them. And yet, um, to my mind, the European Union, but again, you could talk about any of the member states, you could talk about the United States, most Western governments have proven incapable of responding to calls for democracy and social justice from the region. And let's think about why or how, what that means. What is democracy? Well, democracy certainly involves human rights, right? 
we're quite familiar with some of them, uh, the rights of freedom of expression, civil political rights generally. But it also means social and economic rights amongst others. And one of the problems with the European Union response was that it favoured uh, these new policies, supposedly, um, again prioritised civil and political rights, elections, uh, minority rights, religious rights, especially Christians, women's rights. Um, but they didn't really pronounce themselves about some of the tougher civil and political rights, for example, civil, the, the right to freedom of association, the right to, to protest. Um, and much less did they tackle social and economic conditions uh, more generally. You know, they didn't, and especially they didn't recognize social and economic rights. Um, they preferred to focus on things like elections, which are relatively easy for governments to do, monitor elections, um, instead of dealing with social justice. They preferred, in general, to focus on the procedural, formal aspects of democracy rather than the harder, substantive aspects of democracy. Right? Um, and my criticism in that respect is twofold. First of all, that these policies are not at all new. As I've hinted before, basically these are rehashed versions of the policies that existed before the uprisings. And for any of you who are particularly masochistic, I have several publications in which I analyze the documents. I've read, I don't even know how many policy documents by the European Union, statements, public pronouncements, and so on, and they all follow the same pattern. Um, so yes, if you have a few hours to while away, or you're if you're an insomniac, you can, you can, you can turn to those. Um, secondly, the problem is that these, uh, that these measures, that these policies that have been put in place, did not shore up those popular movements that were calling for social justice, uh, the downfall of authoritarian regimes, and the transformation which, while not articulated in terms of democracy, certainly went in that, in that direction. And it's really important, I mean, you know, you could say, well, you know, you sat in your comfortable ivory tower, looked at documents, and you thought, ah, social and economic rights, that's an angle, right? But it's not like that at all. I mean, one of, in one of my other incarnations, I'm the scientific lead on a large project funded by the European Union uh, under the Framework 7 program, and it's on Arab transitions. And one of the things that we did was to carry out a series of surveys in North African countries plus uh, Jordan and Iraq in 2014. And one of the questions that we asked people were, you know, what do you think are the most important characteristics of democracy? Rank them. The first, choose two. The first most important and second most important characteristic. And when you look at the pattern of people's answers, and this is true of all the countries that we surveyed, it's quite clear that people have, um, by and large, uh, a similar focus on civil and political rights and also on social and economic conditions, right? So people have quite an organic view of what democracy is. Yes, it's going to vote, but it's also being material in the condi conditions to be able to exercise those votes. You know, if I'm too poor, if I'm stuck at work, if my employer doesn't allow me to go, then, of course, I may have the right in theory, but it's not uh, one that I can exercise in practice. Um, so it's, um, it's an interest of mine, but it's also an interest of uh, people in the region. Now, to those criticisms, uh, Western governments have essentially presented three kinds of answers. First, they claim that, to the contrary of what I've just stated, that the innovation is real, you know, that I'm wrong and the innovation is real. Secondly, 
there's another claim which is that well, social and economic, social justice and economic conditions are important, but they're just one of a series of factors. You know, of course, um, authoritarianism, social economic marginalization, lack of representation, ICTs, media, Facebook, and so on. Right? All of those things are important. So this stuff about social and economic justice is not that important. And the third kind of answer is to retreat into a kind of pragmatic. Uh, uh, argument or the, an argument that is pre presented as pragmatic, namely to say, well, yes, social justice, economic rights, democracy writ large are very important and they're very nice, but they're a bit idealistic. You know? What we really need to do is our national interest is in relation to things like security, migration, stability, and so on. We have to make the hard-nosed choices and, and, and go in that direction rather than what our better angels might advise us to do. And I think that those, those three kinds of answers don't stand up to scrutiny. First of all, clearly I don't believe that, that there is real policy innovation, well, for the reasons that I've just set out. Um, secondly, um, the claim that social and economic justice, uh, social rights and economic rights are not uh, you know, priorities in terms of pursuing democratization. Um, it seems to me that none of the uh, multiple factors that policymakers cite, opposition to authoritarianism, media um, as facilitator of revolution, um, and, um, uh, and a lack of representation, a failure of politicians to represent people, it seems that on none of these counts can we say that European Union policies have been successful, have produced the kind of effects that they would claim uh, to, to try to facilitate. First of all, um, the pragmatic support for dictatorship no more helps democratic transition today than it did before 2010. Right? The, I see no argument for that to be true today um, while it was not in, um, in 2010 and beforehand. Secondly, the, the tools that policymakers, Western policymakers give themselves in order to achieve uh, growth, economic growth, you know, namely particularly free trade um, agreements right, at an international level, what the European Union calls deep and comprehensive free trade agreements are no more effective than what it called free trade areas before uh, the uprisings. As far as media and ICT are concerned, well, of course, you know, these have been used as tools for, for in, in the uprisings. For example, um, some activists were telling me that during the uprising in, um, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, people were posting things on Facebook saying, oh, we'll meet up in this square, you know, and then walk on, march on that other square, right? But in reality, on the phones, they were doing something completely different, right? So they were using media, but they were using it strategically in order to distract uh, and to uh, delay the reaction of the security services. So it's not, it's not clear um, that, it's not clear that, um, that those tools, in any case, were, would, you know, would facilitate or would cause in themselves transitions towards democracy. They're at best tools, but they're not uh, causal factors. And finally, representation. You know, so the claim is that you know, we had better, we Western policymakers, had better focus on, um, on promoting elections, promoting representation, uh, democratic political culture amongst uh, elected representatives. Um, but as far as I can tell, Elections in the Middle East where the uprisings have taken place have in most cases returned to be the preserve of clientelistic political elites. 
Right? So there was a period of intense participation. Again, Tunisia and Egypt are very good examples. Right? Massive political participation, unprecedented in the history of these countries. Right? Because there was a perception that, that change might actually happen through the ballot box. Right? In the last couple of years, that, that interest has declined. Why? Because people don't think that the formal political forum is actually one in which uh, political change will take place. Um, and finally, the argument that, that we actually should retreat away from promoting more sophisticated notions of democracy closer to the sentiments of the people uh, in the name of hard-nosed political, um, hard political uh, choices and priorities. Um, it strikes me, though, that it's very difficult to claim that these policies that we have pursued in the past actually produce the national security and are in the national interest as they are claimed to be. You know, if we look particularly in Europe, um, and Australia has its own policy uh, or politics of, uh, of dealing with refugees, um, it seems to me that actually that support for stability has produced nothing more than, uh, than an increase in the problems that we faced until now. You know, these societies have not become more stable. They have not become, they have not consolidated. They have not grown. That growth has not spread equitably. They have not become more resilient to uh, to instability, political instability, and they haven't become um, uh, as Western policymakers would like them to have become, would have liked them to become, um, societies within which there's a, a lower propensity towards migration. So this is another aspect that we looked at um, in, in, in our surveys, and not just in our surveys, but you know, survey-based research in, in the Middle East shows quite clearly that the primary push factor for migration is the economic situation, apart from specific cases like Libya or Iraq, where there are some clearly overriding security concerns. Okay? But most of the time, people want to emigrate because they want a better life. Right? It's quite intuitively obvious. Right? So these failed policies have done nothing more than produce regimes that appear to be strong, that use violence in very assertive ways, and so give the appearance of stability. They repress any kind of opposition, they give the impression of stability. However, um, in supporting those kinds of regimes, what the European Union does um, is to essentially begin over time to increasingly delegitimize its own claims to support democracy. It delegitimizes its own claim to represent dem democracy. It, the European Union famously claims for itself that it is a normative political actor, a norm, a value-driven political actor. But most importantly, and most seriously, I think, that by associating its policies with the label democracy, it ends up delegitimizing the label democracy itself, the idea of democracy itself. Very legitimately, for example, um, in countries like Iraq, uh, 13 years after the invasion, one might legitimately ask, what has democracy or putative democracy, formal democracy, done for us? So this focus on formal democracy ends up undermining the notion of democracy itself. What I would like to end on is, um, as my comments draw to a close, is that I think that is the claim that I think that this is not simply a question of um, 
of recognizing the mistakes of policies towards the Middle East. Right? I've, what I've said until now has essentially been that uh, we have made mistakes, policymakers have made mistakes in their promotion of democracy in the Middle East. And we could say, well, of course, this is, um, this is important to an extent and how sorry we feel for the populations uh, that, are, that, are, that have to bear the consequences of these failures and so on. But I think it's a lot more serious than that, which is already a very serious uh, implication. Because I think the politics of dealing with democracy, the desire for democracy, for social justice, for economic inclusion in places like the Middle East is directly linked to um, the struggle, the debate, uh, the challenges to democracy in Western countries themselves. If we think about the, uh, the two key areas that uh, populations around the Middle East have been dissatisfied in... How many minutes do I have? I'm closing. Right, okay, yes. Um, a little minute. That's a terrible... Word. In Italian, if someone says to you, un minutino, a, a small minute, it's an infinite amount of time. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. A very big minute. Okay, yes, a very big minute. So the point is, not simply that, um, that what's going on is serious over there, it's also very serious over here. What is it that people want? Right? People want better representation, they want uh, you know, authoritarianism, dictatorship to disappear, they want better implementation of civil and political rights, but they also want the effective delivery of social and economic rights. They want social justice. Right? And those are exactly the kinds of challenges that we face in the so-called West of consolidated liberal democracies today. Now, in, back in December, I was invited to this thing called Mediterranean Dialogues, and it was this kind of Davos-style, uh, high-flying I mean, you know, uh, forum for uh, ministers and experts and so on. And Sergei Lavrov gave a speech in which he said, well, what we need for the Middle East is a Marshall Plan. And I think that was a very good metaphor, but not probably for the reasons that he intended. The, the point of the Marshall Plan in the wake of the Second World War was to mainstream politics, and society in Europe to prevent a repetition of the mistakes that were made, or that we thought we'd made, after the First World War that permitted the emergence of Nazi fascism. Right? So it was designed to prevent the radicalization of politics to both the left and the right. right? Now, that's exactly the kind of intervention that we need today. If we look across Europe in particular, we see the rise of you know, left-wing, radical left-wing movement, movements from Podemos in Spain to Syriza, well, Syriza is maybe not that radical anymore, but um, uh, it used to be radical um, in Greece. Um, and more worryingly, as far as I'm concerned, we see the rise of a raft of right-wing parties um, in, in the rest of Europe. What is it that people are appealing to? What do people want from these parties? They want precisely, they, precisely the same things. They want social justice. They want better representation. They feel disenfranchised both politically, socially, and economically. And so um, the idea that we've presented, that, we're, that I've presented today, is that we're talking about today is democracy. And um, I think it's a very good idea. I think we should try it. Thank you very much. Ronald Winter. Okie dokie. Well, I'm glad you talked about um, 
I'm glad you talked about social and economic oh that's loud about social and economic justice Andrea because I am going to talk about that in a little minute we just have to get out of this powerpoint and now into the other one okay let me just go away uh, alrighty where is it where is it there it is alright then slideshow where's the slideshow thing there it is all right, now anyone who speaks French or knows anything about French history or politics might find some of the references in this first slide amusing. I love the um, logo for the European Union and the little symbols that have been added in, um, more topical than ever, I think. Tu me dis moi, that is a reference to the Tasse moi, uh, the state is me, which um, has been attributed to Louis XIV, absolutist monarch. And, um, oh... Oh, um, well, um, no, it's us, and you'll see why that's relevant in just a moment. And, and then there's them and us. Now, there's a museum of immigration in France called the Cité Nationale d'Histoire d'Immigration. And um, they, the, the, when it was being set up, and it was in Sarkozy's time, uh, it was, um, the, the motto was, their history is our history. And a lot of left-wing historians were very, very critical of that motto for all the reasons one can understand. And of course, when we're talking trans-Mediterranean, we're talking about a pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial history of French uh, Maghrebian North African interactions. Yeah? So, of course, Tunisia is central to that. Now, I'm not going to talk about a remake of Rosemary's Baby, don't worry, but it, <laughs> it is um, just about as scary. Now, who have we got here? Mm-hmm. Now, sort of, our Sarko, our Nico, and he's very good at, oh, oh, yes, yeah, I don't know, those sorts of gestures. Um, he was very, very proud of the Union for the Mediterranean, which was developed out of the Barcelona process about European um, Mediterranean cooperation, the Euro-Mediterranean Partnership, or Euromed, they like these fancy names, and that was that was a, a declaration signed in 1995, and there have been various um, developments since. In 2004, for example, there was an um, a association signed with Egypt, which Andrea would know about, an agreement there, and the Union for Mediterranean was Sarkozy's baby. He wanted to think Mediterranean, he wanted everything to be about the Mediterranean, and he wanted France to sort of own this, yes, that was his big dream. And the initial presidency of the Union for the Mediterranean, which includes the whole of the EU plus 15 other countries, and they include countries as diverse as Bosnia-Herzegovina, Israel, Jordan, the Maghreb, um, <laughs> and so on. And so the, the Mediterranean extends, it's sort of Mediterranean writ large, yes? And there was also the, one of the first exhibitions at another Sarkozy baby, which is the Museum, which is the Museum for Civilizations of Europe and the Mediterranean in Marseille, which is a very interesting museum. I went to the... Um, shortly after it opened and one of the first temporary exhibitions was called Le Noir et le Bleu um, The Black and the Blue and it sort of was a bit about bruising because it was about travelling it was about crises it was about wars it was about things that sort of formed our modern world and it talked a lot about leaned very heavily on enlightenment and there was also in that exhibition a, a sort of model of or a, a sort of mapping of the, the countries in the Union for the Mediterranean 
So, moving 18 months down the track, and Andrea referred to this, and you referred to France, but let's refer to the person who was centrally involved, our friend Mum, or Michelle Adion-Marie. And this is what she said two days before Benadi left, and she was roundly criticised, and Sarkozy had a quiet word with her and said, right, you have to resign now. <laughs> which she did. Um, she was very, very pally with Benadi and his family and his, his uh, entourage. And um, these pronouncements were roundly criticised by the Assemblée Nationale, um, the French um, uh, Parliament. And uh, it was very, very embarrassing for the French presidency at the time. And so France really had egg all over its collective face. So there was a quick backpedal, as Andrea has already said, in relation to Tunisia. Oops, no, we've supported the wrong guys. We're going to support the revolution now. It's all great. Moving another four and a half years down the track, and here you'll get the reference from before. Tunisia is us. Tunisia will never be alone. And that, of course, is the Prime Minister, who everyone's wondering whether he's going to resign any day now. There have been a few um, quite well-staged exits from the French government recently, notably Christian Toubira, who was a fabulous Justice Minister, very, very um, bolshy and um, very, very um, upstanding for minority rights, women's rights and so on. She left the French government in protest against the law removing nationality from people who had been um, convicted of... Uh, serious crimes like terrorism. So Valls is sort of, his position is a little bit precarious. He was supposed to be in Australia around about now, but he had to postpone his visit for reasons that I'm sure are obvious to us all. Uh, so it's always been about security between France and Tunisia. There's democracy, yes, and they've sort of you know, been on the back foot and then had to shift around a little bit and do a little bit of a dance. But a lot of it has been, particularly recently with the terrorist attacks in Paris last year and a number of terrorist attacks in uh, Tunisia, there has been uh, a lot of emphasis on security. And Buzz was referring particularly um, at that time to reinforcement of um, the Libyan border, yeah, where there was a lot of um, unrest, and there've been some, uh, there's been a bad, a bad series of attacks there very, very recently, about a week ago. So the relationship between France and Tunisia has been a lot about security lately. We probably, you probably know that Tunisia is one of the main source countries for jihadists that go to work with Daesh. And uh, so that's been a real problem both for Tunisia and for France. And when Andrea talked about these sorts of regimes and UBU sorts of modeling these sorts of regimes, that made me sort of go tilt a little bit, as we say in French. That made me um, react a little bit because they're not all the same. If we look at all the, the so-called Arab Spring countries, and it's not a term that's used in the Arab world, but if we look at those countries, we actually see... Um, an immense variety of situations, historically, politically, currently. Tunisia is probably the only place that successfully transitioned to something different, although some of it's same old, same old. Yeah? Tunisia has changed around. They had a constituent assembly. They wrote a new constitution. They had a political crisis with Nada trying to reintroduce all sorts of things by the back door that people didn't think were very democratic. Um, and uh, that was revolved a walkout. So Tunisia from the parliament, and Tunisia was very, very concerned with 
the political and civil rights side of the conversation for, for quite some time. So Tunisia is quite an interesting case that has transitioned to different things quite peacefully but is now somewhat in the doldrums for various reasons, um, which I'll come to in just a second. But just to carry on a little bit with the French side of things. So we have states of emergency currently in both France and Tunisia and for somewhat related reasons. And those states of emergency have recently been prolonged in both countries. We also have, you're going to love this, states of co-optation. You will remember the big demonstration, Je suis Charlie, after the attacks in January last year. And notice we've also got Je suis Nico. Yes, Nicolas Sarkozy, the former president, managed to um, went his way to the front um, very, very, the pushy little guy he is, but he managed to get there and he's so in the front line with a rather unusual bunch of people including Netanyahu and a, a few other authoritarian types of people that we'd rather not associate with, yes? So that sort of um, mass co-optation of the tragedy in January was uh, very, very badly viewed within France and outside France and as you probably know the debates around Charlie Hebdo and the forgotten four who were killed because they happened to be Jewish and of course the, the terrible attacks in November last year have been part of a very very big debate in France and that then gets folded into the whole Arab Spring debate not just because of the Syrian refugee crisis and you probably know or you may not know the EU has funneled huge amounts of money into Jordan to look after the refugees there because they don't want them coming to Europe, they want them to stay in Jordan because the main um, host countries for Syrian refugees are currently Jordan, Turkey and Lebanon and Lebanon and they're sort of starting to crack under the strain much more so than Europe in fact. Now this World Social Forum I have to stop don't I? The World Social Forum um, happened a few years ago in Tunis and there were big, big debates at that time because that was right in the middle of the political crisis when Nahda had come, the Islamist right had come to power in Tunisia govern, governing with the so-called Troika, a coalition of three parties but with Nahda in the lead and there was a lot of disillusionment. Andreas talked about the disillusionment, I think it's pretty widespread and um, in some ways that's unsurprising. I said, well, why is everybody surprised? I mean, revolutions aren't neat or pretty or quick, as African-American lesbian feminist Pat Parker said about 35 years ago. Revolutions aren't neat or pretty or quick. They take a long time. And they have forward and backward steps. So I'm not at all surprised by what happened. But there was this disillusionment. And... Now, we've got the new government that there's been there for a bit over a year and it's fairly stagnating and the, the secular left has refused, even though they got a significant proportion of the vote in 2014, has refused to participate in this government because they've included ministers from Nada. So there are those sorts of fracture lines around um, the imbrication of religion and politics or not in Tunisia. And I'm glad you talked about social and economic justice because the situation in Tunisia is disastrous. Socioeconomically, it's very, very bad. It's worse than under Ben Ali at the moment. It's a little bit better than it was a couple of years ago, but it's still significantly worse than it was under Ben Ali. Youth unemployment was one of the main drivers 
of the uprisings, the City Buzin Revolution, so-called, which started in December 2010, um, but it really hasn't improved. And just to put the picture on, you know, to sort of get put in the picture, the, the EU talk about democracy, and I'm finishing on this, just to put that in a, an economic perspective, if the EU is really serious about Arab world democracy, it may want to fix some of these things up. Now, you probably all know it's no surprise that most of the wealthier nations of the world trade with each other and invest in each other. Now, these are the biggest recipients of foreign direct investment, the biggest givers of foreign direct investment, or the biggest outflows, are also US, Hong Kong, China and South Korea. So they actually give more than they receive in terms of foreign direct investment. But um, it's basically a conversation that's happening among the same powers. There is very little foreign direct investment by the EU countries in the Union for the Mediterranean countries. So the Union for the Mediterranean is a very cosmetic affair. That's unsurprising. And if you look at the total trade of the EU, it's represented, half of it's represented by those four countries. Yeah? The only union for the Mediterranean in the top ten is Turkey, with a very small, much smaller percent of the trade. And there are Egypt and Tunisia. They're way down the list. In terms of their importance as trading partners with the EU, However, for the countries, the post-Arab Spring so-called countries, the EU is actually really, really important in terms of financial dependency. Egypt's second trading partner is Saudi Arabia, interestingly, and Tunisia's second trading partner is also Italy at this point in time. It changes around a bit. But Tunisia and France, France has been Tunisia's, Algeria's, Morocco's main trading partner since forever, for obvious reasons. Yeah? These colonial relationships continue after colonisation is over. So for all the jolly talk we have in the EU about democracy, we have a serious financial imbalance, an economic imbalance, that underpins a lot of the problems that countries are having trying to crawl out of these doldrums they're in. I think that's the end. That is the end. Okay, that'll do. Thank you very much, uh, Bronwyn. Uh, Professor Karadis. That's me. Welcome. Yes. Where can I, I... I have a presentation. Right here. The, right there. Yeah. Right there. That one? Yep. <coughs> Do we see anything? Oh. There it is. Do I need this or not? Yes. Right. Uh, 
I will try to be brief. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here today and the organizers, especially Lucia, and because she insisted that I will give a paper on something which is probably quite unrelated to the uh, uh, Arab Springs, although through a certain spasm of synchronicity took place together at the same time, and we are on the other side of the Mediterranean. I would like to say that uh, thank you for inviting me in a, in a conference on the Arab countries because I always believe that Greece is an honorary Arab country and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they, belong, they have the same social and uh, cultural structures and to a certain degree, as you know, I mean we share the same, not to a certain degree, actually to a very um, large percentage, we share the same political history, the same uh, social structures, the same perceptions of patriarchy, the same <laughs> approach to women, the same approach to religion. Religion. I remember a few years ago, but, um, uh, John Howard told me in, at the Parliament, the National Parliament of Australia, you know, we always thought of Greece as another Arab country because here, we, I love that thing, we, because uh, you're the only country, the only uh, ethnic community in Australia which is represented by priests. Politically, <laughs> that, uh, I understood immediately. You know, that's John Howard and uh, my former student uh, Arthur C. Novinos. And I'd like to uh, start with this incredible picture that you see here, this graffiti in the of the uh, uh, walls of Athens, because I think that democracy has been so much betrayed the in Greece that the only place that we can find open democracy today are the walls of Athens. This is uh, actually the gallery of uh, where people express their feelings. It's the demotic sublime, as I call it, because they express every, all the desires, all the, if I may say, the anger, the rage against the political regime, regime that has betrayed them. But what happened? I know that some of you like this idea of the radical left in Greece, but I have to tell you from the beginning I was extremely, extremely cautious and reserved about the radical left in Greece because I knew how that radical left, the left had been uh, uh, constituted and made of. But, of course, if you want to understand what happened in Greece, you have to see at this very interesting movie by Igmar Bergman, The Serpent's Egg. It is one of the best films, not very well studied, uh, but because they don't think that it's up to the Igmar Bergman's statue of extensionist dramas. But it was a grim take on the, early, uh, the last days of the Weimar Republic, 1924, the mid-days of the Weimar Republic, Republic, and the gradual erosion of all forms of democratic institutions that were established during the period, which in the end were used by the Nazi party to take over power and establish the regime of terror. In the end of the film we hear the striking reference to, Julius, to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, egg which hatched to wood as his kind grew mischievous and kill him in the shell. What comes out of the serpent's egg is another serpent, equally venomous and deadly, slightly different in form and appearance, but similar in its function and effectiveness. This is a parable, therefore, and a cautionary tale that I have to offer tonight when we discuss the betrayal of democracy in Greece during the last six years. It's a tale of rise and fall, a tale of broken promises and institutional failure, of personality without ethics and politicians without politics. And to my understanding, it shows the gradual transformation of liberal democracy into an autocratic oligarchy administered by corporate elites and their political alliances. In short, 
in the last years we witnessed in Greece once again in history as we did during the Weimar Republic what it means to have a democratic polity ruled and administered by non-democrats and I don't only mean the rise of the Nazi right-wing parties like the Golden Dawn uh, in, in Greece that's it here you know the Golden Dawn which appears to be the popular to be popular only because they have been presented by the media as a reaction to austerity I have to tell you that in 1991, when uh, communism collapsed, almost two million immigrants came to went to Greece, and yet we didn't have a rise of right-wing parties. Actually, the right-wing party was, especially the Nazi party, was one percent. It remained one percent until 2009. And so there is no reason of xenophobia, as you understand there. That is, was found later on, and it's very interesting to see that this Golden Dawn phenomenon is, I believe, a phenomenon which the, the, uh, relates to the austerity that was imposed in Greece after 2009 by none other than the European Union and the International Monetary Fund. One can, could claim that the rise of neo-Nazism is a result of the frustration as well with the pseudo-democratic, indeed, indeed anti-democratic policies imposed during the same period. People know that the solution to the problems of democracy comes through more democracy and not less. I believe that the constant promotion and thus normalization of the neo-Nazis indicates the constant attempts by the political order that govern the country to restrict democracy and limit individual freedoms, something that happens in other countries under the pretext of security and anti-terrorism. One could call it also a failure in political imagination, or indeed in the political imaginary, but the truth is that behind anything else we have a profound failure in all projects of political change and social renewal, especially under a left-wing government. We don't expect a renewal by a, 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 from a, a right-wing government, of course, you say conservatism or the solidification of existing policies. But what we see in the last year in particular is even worse, the whole situation has got worse because of the policies of the so-called radical left. I will not insist on the personalities of the specific party politics, especially in the last six years. Some of you have been enamored by colorful personalities like Varoufakis, who is, I believe, one of the worst politicians that have ever walked this planet, <laughs> and one of the worst economists as well, as I have to tell you. And uh, it started with the austerity measures in early 2010 with George Papandreou. Then, back then, George Papandreou was the darling of all, actually, leftists, and then he disappeared again, with an economic policy which simply tried to destroy the social and political arrangements achieved during the previous decades. Austerity meant the destruction of the social fabric of a whole state, and at the same time the submission of the political into the demands and the needs of that great platonic abstraction called the market. Ironically enough, austerity was implemented by the political class that caused the crisis in the first place. It was a political class consisted of the party functionaries, political apparatchniks, and their corporate sponsors. In the Greek case, they instituted and indeed institutionalized a political discourse which has become dominant ever since in the country, which I call it elsewhere ethno-populism, a lethal mixture of proto-fascist corporatism and nationalist ideologies of the 19th century. 
ethnopopulism became a defense mechanism of a privileges against any form of criticism from within or from without, and of course of the domination of the body politic. Every time that the political class was submit, submitted to the political critique, that was denounced by the media as anti-patriotic, anti-Greek, therefore pro-German and collaborationist, bringing back memories of the Second World War occupation of Greece by Germany. At the moment that the most brutal reductions in salaries, 50% unemployment amongst the young, 27% amongst the adults, and the reduction in services and pensions were imposed upon the people, any form of political of criticism was considered as undermining social cohesion and attributed to external powers like the United States. Later on, the United States supported us. It's very interesting to see that the greatest supporter of um, Syriza is the United, Na the United States and Israel. And, uh, and then uh, Turkey, which is a very interesting cause in this. And finally, the great enemy, because Greeks are, if not anti-Semite, very Judeophobic, you know, uh, Israel itself uh, uh, um, uh, became one of the greatest supporters of Greece. The dominant political discourse, therefore, in Greece, because we don't have uprisings, we don't have essentially any more, if I may say, a rebellion or revolution, is probably the most unhistorical, anti-political invention against all discourses of renewal. Unfortunately, the same strategy was continued by the left-wing government elected to office some 15 months ago. A hope of change started in January 2015 with the promise of a new contract, as I said, with the people, but ending soon with the same austerity measures and the same political language which characterized the previous political regime. And in reality, this development was expected by some people, by some of us. A social movement, and especially a radical left movement, does not simply reform economy, but most importantly of how government, especially democratic governance and power, relate to their citizens. During the period, no, this period, no change took place in the relations between citizens and the state. They remained as opaque, oppressive and hostile as they were under the conservatives. In some ways were even more intensified with a rhetoric of xenophobia, anti-immigration and anti-Semitism employed by the coalition partner in government, the radical left, the fascist party of the so-called independent Greeks, who is the Minister for Defence and the um, Deputy uh, um, uh, Prime Minister. While the left had the opportunity to renew social agendas and reinvent the role of the state in the administering projects of social reconstruction, it opted to continue the same policies and the same strategies of domination so well implemented and so successfully implemented by previous administrations. Yet the question of democratic change, according to my perception, refers to the way that left, the left deals with questions of the state. Modern states have been established over the period of the last 200 years through the strategies of higher elites which have taken over the projects, all projects of modernization. The failure of democratization is due to these bureaucratic elites that govern and want to monopolize power and exert control over the public discourse in the country. I wrote my experiences in um, uh, 
uh, in the, of this undemocratic aberration in a book I call The Demons of Athens. There I interviewed a leader of the conservative government who in a chilling voice and rhetoric told me we are absolutely certain that we control the people, he says, but there is no way for them to express their mind in public and influence other people. As long as we control public debate, let them know everything in the comfort of their couch. Let them talk endlessly in the cafes. Backgammon. Let them complain continuously in front of the cameras. Let them practice self-oblivion in the mass spectacles of soccer and political rallies. We have established the rule of the game and we remain in control of everything step by step. You have managed to completely dominate the semantics of language. No, I said, certainly. That's the way to control a society like this one, by establishing the parameters of meaningful conversation. I find, as I said, this I return to my original point, that is the case of the Egyptian revolution, which was lost and became a lost spring. The same happened in Greece with the manipulation of popular anger against the political order that ruled the place for 40 years and its usurpation by extremely opportunistic bureaucratic elites which maintained the grip on power unopposed to this day. Because the new, I finish, and the new leaders of Syriza were also hatched in the totalitarian and autocratic practices of the previous political system, which now took a new form, and indeed it, has re, it is reincarnated through the left. The future of democracy can only be, I think, that's this, the, the, the resistance of Greek people, as I said, on the walls of the big buildings of Athens. I like the way that they rewrite their relation to the past and relation to the society. They tend to the roaring lion. <laughs> and this is a very interesting, one of the most beautiful uh, 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 in the at the, uh, at the school in the most uh, un 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 this, uh, underprivileged area of Athens. And I won't believe that the future of democracy can only come through resistance. We need to mobilize again the movement of anti-establishment struggle in order to create, not in order to create new establishments, but in order to introduce more democratic forms of direct democratic control against the opaque forms of autocratic managerialism from above. Democracy is a project which since its first imagining by the Athenian citizens asks for active citizens to remain alive. Thank you.